Well, good morning to you again. We are in our third week of our study in Bible prophecy. We're calling this series of messages, The End Times, and we will be looking at many passages of Scripture throughout the coming weeks. It's been said by some Bible students that the study of prophecy is kind of like assembling a jigsaw puzzle. There are pieces of the puzzle scattered throughout the Scripture. And as you study, you see how the shapes and colors fit together, and you can get the pieces put together fairly well so you can see the basic picture, but there are still some unanswered questions. Our understanding of Bible prophecy continues to grow as predicted events continue to unfold. And with over a thousand Old Testament references to the second coming of Christ, and 300 New Testament references to the return of Christ, there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle, and there are many things that God obviously wanted us to understand. That's why there's so much information on this issue. For the last couple of weeks, I have shared with you several reasons why we believe that we are nearing the end of the age. And I do believe that. But we are not setting dates. We are not involved at all in date setting or claiming that Christ will return this year or in the next five years or whenever. The rapture could occur this year, but we make no ironclad prediction regarding the exact timing of our Savior's return. Jesus said he would return, but he also said that we cannot know exactly when it will happen. But things that must happen in order for many end-time prophecies to be fulfilled have happened. Things are lining up. The digital information age, the nuclear age, the instant international satellite TV communications, the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948, the regathering of the Jewish people into her ancient homeland after nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish control of the city of Jerusalem since 1967, all those things tell us, I believe, that this age is drawing to a close. Jesus himself gave five signs of the end that we looked at last week from Matthew 24. Widespread spiritual deception, international conflict, natural disasters, intense persecution, and widespread apostasy. And Jesus used the word picture of a woman in labor and described these signs as things that will become more frequent and more intense as the end of the age approaches, just like a woman's labor pains preceding birth. You know, if I live a normal lifespan and I don't wind up with cancer or some other disease, and if I don't get in an accident or something, I could live another 20 years or so. And I totally believe that Jesus could return in my lifetime. It is very possible that I could live to see the rapture and experience the rapture. But either way, he's coming for me or I'm going to him. So I want to be ready for whatever may happen. Today I would like to study with you the issue of globalism from a biblical perspective. Globalism, or globalization, as it's often called today, uh, actually the word entered Webster's Dictionary in the early 1950s, but that calls, or the, that concept of globalization calls for every country in the world to be united into one centralized political and economic power. 
Bible students often refer to this as a one-world government. Current secular political leaders call it the New World Order. Fears of a nuclear war that would wipe out the world, fear of hunger, disease, fear of supposed global warming, imagined overpopulation, pollution, life-threatening weather catastrophes, threats of terrorism, all those things are considered as motivations for creating a new world order. Politicians and other leaders have been calling for and planning for a one-world government or new world order throughout the 1900s. But in the last 50 years, they have become much more vocal and open about it, although it's been under the radar of most Americans. Back in 1944, as World War II was winding down, 730 of the world's leading politicians from all 44 of the Allied Nations met at a, a posh hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to discuss how they could stabilize and reorganize the world's economy after the war ended, which they expected to be soon. World leaders in politics and finance had been planning this for over two years, and when they left that conference, they had developed, for the first time in world history, the plan for the infrastructure for a one-world economy. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Group came out of this meeting. One-world economy and one-world government proponents have been quietly working on this project ever since. According to some historians who have researched this meeting and interviewed, actually interviewed some of those involved in it, their plan is working and everything is in place for their new world order. President Lyndon Johnson back in the 1960s, was a proponent of a new world order. John Lennon of Beatles fame wrote his wildly famous song, Imagine, in 1971, which promoted a new world order, although he didn't use the term. You may remember, some of you old enough to remember it, may remember the song, Imagine There is No Heaven, No Hell, No Religion, No Countries, No Possessions, Nothing to kill and die for, a time for living for today, in peace, and the world will live as one. President Bush, the elder, uh, from, who was president in 1988 to 1992, made the headlines briefly when he actually used the phrase New World Order in a couple of speeches in the early 90s. David Rockefeller, the billionaire banker, soon to be 100 years old, an international financier, said in 1994 at a speech in the United Nations, or at the United Nations, he said, all we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. And that is just a, a tiny sampling of those who are promoting and working toward globalization, a one world, new world order. Calls for a one-world order, actually, and a one-world government are not new. In fact, they are as old as the book of Genesis. Take your Bible, if you, I know you have it with you today. Please look at the book of Genesis in chapter 11. We're just going to read the first few verses of Genesis in chapter 11. This is just a few generations after the flood of Noah's day. And the scripture says in Genesis 11, Now the whole world, the whole earth, had one language and one speech. 
And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they built there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Those of you who are with us, who were with us and are with us most of the time during the 10 a.m. Bible study hour will immediately remember this passage as we just spent several weeks examining the implications of this event regarding the spread of language and culture around the world. This attempt to defy God's plan by building this tower and city was initiated by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, just a few short generations after the flood. But note several things with me. One is, this was the first attempt at a one-world government. It was in direct disobedience to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God intervened in this man-centered attempt to centralize government, Notice they said in the passage, let us make a name for ourselves so we won't be scattered around the earth. Whereas God had said to do exactly the opposite, scatter around the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Note also with me that it was not God's will for, man to, or for mankind to centralize his government and feed his pride in defiance of God. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, the scripture still refers to kings and nations of people honoring and glorifying God in the new Jerusalem. We read that in Revelation 21. So there are, even in heaven, in eternity, there are still apparently some ethnic and national distinctions. God's intention was for men to spread around the earth, not to centralize themselves. The Apostle Paul, in his wonderful sermon that he preached in Athens in Acts chapter 17, said that God had ordained the places for every ethnic group to live so that they would seek the Lord. A one-world government was never part of God's plan for mankind until he comes to earth to rule it. Man is too sinful, and when we begin to centralize our governments on a global scale, it feeds our sinful pride and our sense of power and attempts us to reject God and rely on ourselves. Smaller, localized human government is apparently better for the spiritual well-being of mankind. It doesn't feed our pride as much and hopefully leaves the door of our hearts more open to the Lord. The famous British parliamentarian Lord Acton 
wrote to one of his nephews in 1887, a personal letter, and part of that has been published and became a, a very famous quote from Lord Acton in 1887. He said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Isn't that the truth? Looking down through the history of mankind, we see that the larger that government gets and the more centralized its power becomes, the more corrupt it becomes. That's one reason why many Bible-believing Christians support smaller government and resist the growth of government. It always leads to more bureaucracy, and we tend to vote against those kinds of things. And in the end, greater centralization of government almost always leads to more persecution of believers in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, Pray for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That is, one of our main prayers regarding government is that they will leave us alone and let us live a quiet, peaceable life of godliness and reverence before the Lord. The larger governments get, the, the more bureaucratic it becomes, then the more authoritarian it gets with more and more regulation and intrusion into daily life, and the more likely it becomes that true followers of Jesus will get harassed and persecuted. So we pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So in Genesis chapter 11, God looked down at the tower of Babel and he said, if these guys will do this, they'll do anything. If they won't obey my command, that we must intervene and confuse their languages so they will spread around the world. And that's exactly what happened. But you know, the devil isn't done by any means. And 4,000 years after Babel, he is working to create another one world government in our day, which will, which will be ruled by the satanically inspired Antichrist. We've looked at a passage in Genesis. Let's go to the opposite end of the Bible, and let's take a look at a passage, Revelation chapter 13. We'll go from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 13, uh, there, is, there is an enormous amount of prophetic information in this chapter. We're only going to be able to look at a few points of interest this morning so we can stay focused on our globalism theme. We'll be returning to this chapter in coming weeks to see other prophetic themes that are also here. But I want you to see what's happening and how it will be used by the Antichrist during the Tribulation. We see in this chapter, Revelation 13, we see globalization in three dimensions. That's what we'll call it, globalization in three dimensions. We will describe to you in coming weeks what some of this symbolism means, but we see in this chapter three main characters in this tribulation drama. We see a dragon who is clearly identified in chapter 12 as being Satan. We see a beast that rises out of the sea, which for many reasons, which we'll discuss in coming weeks, we believe to be the Antichrist, the beast that rises out of the sea. And we see a beast that rises from the earth, which based on what he does, and comparing it with other passages in Revelation, uh, we believe this to be the false prophet, 
the religious assistant to the Antichrist. So let's read through a portion of this chapter. We're going to initially read here verses uh, 1 through 9. If you follow along with us here in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, which we know for sure from chapter 12, is the devil himself. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in the earth. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth or the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We see several truths here, and as I say, we don't have time today to totally unpack all of the symbolism. We're going to focus on the globalism aspect of this chapter. But we see several truths here. The first one we see is that the Antichrist is directly empowered by Satan himself. It says the dragon gave him his power there in verse 2. Gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So the Antichrist is directly empowered by Satan himself. Secondly, we see God is going to allow him to establish a one-world government. In verse 7, it said it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God is going to allow the Antichrist to establish a one-world government. Then we also see, thirdly, that he's going to be worshipped in verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So all who do not truly know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are going to worship the Antichrist. Later on, the false prophet is going to enforce this one-world religion. You see, all who dwell on the earth will worship him there in verse 8. If you look at verse 15, you'll see he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the false prophet is going to enforce this one world religion. You know, many years ago, uh, we were visiting some of Carol's relatives, and uh, there were, uh, they had a big family gathering, and there were a bunch of friends there of their friends from, their, from the area where they lived and so forth. And, and uh, this issue came up of the, of the one world government and the one world religion. And one of the fellows who was there 
who who has uh, uh, he was married to uh, to one of uh, to one of my wife's cousins. He kind of made the remark. He said, "You know this one world religion stuff. It is really so." It is so crazy. I mean, he said, we can't get people to agree on anything. How in the world are they going to put together a one world religion? I just don't see how that could ever happen. You know, when you look at this passage, there's nothing in this passage about building a consensus and sort of persuading people that one way is the right way. That's not what this passage says. It says that the false prophet is going to cause as many as would not worship the beast or the image of the beast to be killed. So there's no consensus building here. It's this is the way, this is what you do, do it our way, worship the beast or we kill you. So he is going to enforce the one world religion in that day when the Antichrist takes over the one world government. So we see the Antichrist is directly empowered by Satan himself. God's going to allow him to establish this one world government, and he will be worshipped. And then the fourth thing we see is he's going to totally control the world's economy. And we see that in verse 16 and verse 17. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The infamous mark of the beast, as people speak of from time to time. When the Antichrist takes over and the, and the religion, uh, the one world religion, the worship of the Antichrist is enforced on people, he's also going to force people to receive some sort of a mark. Back in, you know, 40, 50 years ago, weren't really sure how that was going to happen. You can look around today and see quite easily how that could happen. It's not uh, some big mark that people see. All you'd have to have is some digital implant. But he said he's going to force them to have this mark on their right hands or in their foreheads, and you cannot buy anything or sell anything. There will be total digital control of all of the assets of the world, and you cannot live unless you worship the beast and accept the mark. So we see total globalization, total globalization in Revelation 13. Globalization in three dimensions. A one-world government, a one-world religion, and a one-world economy. The Antichrist will control the political world, the religious world, and the economic world. Total globalization. Globalization is at our doorstep. All of the infrastructure necessary to create the new world order is here. The international monetary system, the digital banking system, the desire among world political leaders for a unified system, it's all ready to go. As David Rockefeller said 20 years ago, all we need is the right crisis and everyone will accept it. Everything the Antichrist will need to rule this world is ready and waiting for him. And I don't want you to listen to all this and let this absolutely terrify you or frighten you or worry you because... God 
always wins. Remember, on the day that Jesus died on the cross, it looked like God was losing. From the human perspective, it looked like the devil was winning. The disciples ran in fear. Peter denied knowing Jesus. The soon-to-be apostles who would turn the world upside down for the Lord were at this, at this point confused and discouraged and overwhelmed and defeated. As Jesus was being marched around and mocked and spit on and abused and tortured and crucified, it looked like God was losing. But Jesus was actually destroying the works of the devil. He was breaking the curse of sin. He was sealing Satan's doom. He was winning eternal victory for those who would be trusting him as their savior down through the centuries. God always wins in the end. Is total globalization coming? You bet it is. Maybe sooner than we think. And it will be a tool in the hands of the Antichrist. But as the scripture commands us over 100 times, fear not. God is still in control. He always wins. We have read the end of the book. God wins. Things may look dark. Things may get tough. But God has a purpose. And in the end, he will win. Our job is to make sure that we are on his side, standing for him and his cause. When will it come, you ask? Only God knows for sure. But it's on our doorstep, so get ready. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. It might be this year, it might be next year, it might be five years, it might be ten years. We really do not know. But the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He promised to come back, and He is coming back, and the world stage is being set for it. Are you ready to meet Him? Do you know Him as your Savior? Are you living the way you want to be living when the Lord returns? I continue to challenge you, as I have in past weeks, that we all may have some serious decisions to make, some serious values to adjust. We certainly have some serious witnessing to do and some serious praying to do, some serious Bible study to do, some serious commitments to follow through on. May God help us to look to the future with joy and anticipation and resolve. And may we live with a great passion for God and His truth, because God always wins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the window on the future that you are giving us. We know we don't have all the details. We don't know precisely how everything will play out, but we see the big picture. We know what's going to take place. We know what's in the process of taking place. And we ask you, Father, to help us to be faithful to you. If some who are here this morning, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray, Father, that they will make certain of this today that they will know that they are on your side and that they have received forgiveness from you through faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Lord, for we who know you as our Savior, we know you will win in the end. We know there may be tough times for your followers. We know there may be challenging days for the people who are trying to live for you. 
for we know that ultimately, no matter how dark the days get, you will win in the end. And you will return, and you will set up your kingdom, and you will rule this world in perfect truth and righteousness. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for the confidence that you are always there with us. Help us in these coming days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.